Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week in synagogues throughout the world, the Jewish community is reading that section from the Holy Scriptures from the Torah known as Titzaveh. It begins in Exodus 27, verse 20, and concludes in Exodus 30, verse 10. The word titzaveh refers to the first word in the parasha, meaning to command. And we have moved in our cycle of reading from the narrative sections of the Exodus to the building of the tabernacle and the role of the priesthood. In this week's parasha, it begins with God saying, And Moses, God commands... You shall command the sons of Israel to use pure olive oil for kindling the lights of lamps. Aaron shall set up this light to burn continually in the sanctuary. It will serve as a light for God for all generations. This is known in the modern sanctuary as the Ne'er Tamid, the eternal life. God continues with his description of the role of the priesthood. Have Aaron and his sons serve me as priests. Make for them sacred garments using fine linen, gold, perlu, purple, and scarlet yarns. Make for them a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a tunic of checkered work, and a sash. These garments must always be worn when officiating in my sanctuary. For Aaron's ephod... Take two lazuli stones and engrave in gold on them the names of the tribes of Israel. Thus Aaron shall carry their names before me as a reminder. In the sanctuary, says God, Aaron shall wear a pure gold breastplate of judgment with engraved stones representing the tribes of Israel. Aaron's robe for officiating will be pure turquoise wool with bells of gold all around. And in this way, the sound of the bells can be heard when the high priest comes into the Lord's sanctuary and when he goes out so he may not die. On Aaron's forehead, you shall make a headplate of pure gold inscribed with holy to God. Thus, Aaron shall bring forgiveness for sins of which a sacred offering is made. Now, this is how the Torah continues. Aaron shall be sanctified and his sons as priests also. It is a very elaborate ceremony of sanctification. Today, we would call it ordination. First, prepare a young bull and two rams without blemish and some matzah bread and matzah cake kneaded with oil. Have Aaron and his sons bathe, then dress in their holy garments and place the anointing oil upon Aaron's head. Then shall Aaron and his sons bring this bull and the basket with matzah bread to the front of the temple of appointed meeting. They shall hold the bull that is slaughtered before God. Take some of the bull's blood when with your finger place blood on the elevated corners of the altar in its base. Parts of the bull will burn at the altar, while others shall burn in a fire outside the camp. 
This is an offering that clears sins. And then it goes on to say that this will be a seven-day ceremony, and whoever touches the altar during these seven days shall remain uh, holy. The Torah portion concludes with God saying to Moses at the tent of appointed meetings, I will set times for myself to meet with the sons of Israel. I will sanctify Aaron and his sons as my priests, and I will dwell in the midst of the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. They will experience that I, God, am their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt in order to dwell in their midst. Now, as you can clearly hear, this is an elaborate description of the temple sacrificial cult and the ordination of the uh, priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who will be charged with implementing the cultic sacrificial rites. And as you can also tell, the description of the robes that the priests are to wear and the ornaments that the priests are to wear becomes part and parcel of every priesthood in every Western religion. Religious leaders don different kinds of clothes, depending on the denomination and perspective, but certainly the origins of all special and unique clothing worn by those required to lead sacred communities finds its origins in this week's Torah portion. My guest this morning to discuss Parashat Titzavet is Rabbi Paul Gollum. He is the senior scholar of the Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York. He is the former editor of the Reform Jewish Quarterly and now serves as a vice president of the American Zionist movement. Uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Gollum. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Um, our parasha, as you well know, is entitled Titzaveh from the book of Exodus. But before we turn to this week's parasha, this week in synagogues throughout the world, there is an additional uh, portion that will be read. The Shabbat before the holiday of Purim um, is called Shabbat Zachor, and there will be a reading um, that focuses on uh, the uh, interaction between the people of Israel and the tribe known as the Amalekites. Now, this is not the first time that this happens. We read about the Amalekites in a previous parasha. So I'm wondering if you might help our listeners understand uh, two things. One, why the Amalekites are singled out in the Torah for this special treatment, and why there seems to be two stories of the Amalekites. Uh, t two stories. First, you have uh, uh, the the portion uh, that is a special portion read for this particular Shabbat comes from Deuteronomy, where it says, "Remember Amalek." Uh, a specific reference to the Amalekites and to the uh, 
the brief uh, narrative that is given in the book of Exodus uh, after the Israelites across <laughs> the sea uh, have rid themselves of the Egyptians, are thinking that they now have a clear path to, uh, to the land that God is going to show them, and all of a sudden they are attacked by the Amalekites. Uh, what Deuteronomy says that Exodus doesn't is that they attack from the rear, they attack the stragglers, they attacked a group of um, poorly armed ex-slaves um, that were not well organized, um, and therefore uh, the Amalekites become the symbol uh, in Jewish tradition of uh, what is a, a um, an unprovoked uh, enmity, hostility to the Jewish people. And then that, that's uh, clarified by the story, the story in the book of Esther, where the arch-villain Haman is called an Agagite, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites. So the Amalekites represent uh, unprovoked hostility uh, toward Israel, and uh, we, we're called upon to remember that. Well, it's, it's interesting. In the Exodus epic, um, the Amalekites simply serve as an impediment uh, to the Israelites on their way to Sinai. Um, they're not necessarily identified with any special enmity um, because they're, the Israelites will meet many who will be impediments on their way to the Holy Land. Uh, but these people... Um, by virtue of, I guess, the repetitive nature of the story, have been singled out, as you said, as the archetypal anti-Semites who um, don't choose to follow the uh, ethical dictates of the God of Israel. And I'm wondering, is there anything else that we can take from this uh, commandment to remember the Amalekites, which becomes so much a part of this week's Torah uh, recitation? Yes, um, I think that there are two um, uh, legitimate thoughts of homilies that are, are drawn from it that are also pretty closely related. Um, they have to do with the fact that the very last line in the book of Exodus prior to the attack of the Amalekites is the Israelites crying out, is God truly among us? That the Amalekites uh, represent moments of a lack of faith. Um, and, and the second is uh, that the Deuteronomic uh, uh, task about remembering the Amalekites tell us that we're supposed to remember them until we can legitimately forget them when we truly have safety and security. So it is a reminder, the Amalekites, rather than necessarily being a, a, an actual people, represent, one, a loss of faith, and secondly, uh, the recognition that even at moments when it sort of feels good, it might not be all 100% good. We have yet to reach, uh, um, in the spiritual sense, the promised land. Uh, we, we have yet to be able to reside in peace and security, and as long as there's the absence of peace and security, Amalek continues to exist. Okay, so the holiday of Purim, 
which will come uh, this week, um, is an opportunity to reflect upon a story uh, from ancient Persia in which the Jewish survival is threatened in a land where they had lived fairly peaceably. And um, the villain Haman is identified as a descendant of the Amalekites, which is why we read this on this uh, Shabbat before Purim. And there's no connection, therefore, between Shabbat Zachor and the normatively assigned parasha for this uh, week, Titzaveh, correct? That's correct. Absolutely. It's, it's an addition that is established purely by its timing with respect to the holiday of Purim. Okay. And Titzaveh doesn't always serve as the parasha on Shabbat Zachor. That would depend on the nature of the Jewish calendar. Exactly. Okay. So thank you for that clarity. Um, And now for our listeners, we want to return to the parasha. And in particular, uh, Rabbi Gollum and I are going to speak about chapter 28 in Exodus, which is uh, specifically directed to the priestly garments. Um, And in my introduction, I identified for our listeners that most Western religious leaders do have some sort of specified garment that they wear when they offer the liturgy of our of their tradition. And I'm wondering if you think that this comes in some way from this tradition enunciated in chapter 28. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that what it's important to recognize that uh, in the narrative flow, uh, particularly of the book of Exodus, we've been introduced to Aaron uh, quite a while ago, principally as Moses' brother and as the individual who's supposed to be able to interpret Moses' halting speech before Pharaoh and the court, um, that already is established as an intercessor or a mediator. But this is the introduction of Aaron as the priest. Now, this is the first time that we're introduced to the priesthood, which is a different form of mediation, namely a mediation between the, the faithful and God. Um, and this is uh, then noted not only by the person of Aaron, but also by the clothes he wears. And I think that your analogy to, um, uh, to uh, vestments, uh, ritual vestments that are worn by many uh, religious figures in many traditions, uh, is is exactly right. That it's important to look the part. So the clothes make the man. Yeah, yeah, to a great extent. And uh, and I guess the clothes, as identified in the parasha, serve then as the origin for the notion that um, uniforms are representative of the task at hand. Um, and so to be a uh, intercedent on behalf of the community uh, to God or for God or to be the offerer, uh, the one who offers the liturgy requires you to look the part. Yes. And I actually have a brief story about that, a personal anecdote. Uh, I served in my first part of my career as a Hillel director that was a Jewish campus minister on a university. 
um, and uh, interacted with my uh, Christian colleagues. In particular, I had a conversation, I, I especially remember, with the Newman Center priests, the Catholic uh, campus ministry. Right. So the Hillel uh, Foundation is the universal organization for Jewish college campuses in the United States. And perhaps right. in, in Canada, it's often known as the Jewish Student Association. And the Newman right. House is for Catholic students in universities. Right. And in Canada, it's often called the Newman Foundation as well. Yes. Good. And, and so... Uh, my colleague uh, tended to wear a clerical collar, but he talked about an earlier um, priest who had served at, at uh, this particular foundation um, who made it a point to wear the clothes of the students in order to identify with the students. Um, and, he, and my colleague said that person was not all that successful because, after all, the students wanted to interact with a priest. They didn't want to interact with somebody who was trying to look like them. They wanted to interact with someone who looked like a priest. Uniforms sometimes are extremely valuable. And it's interesting that in Christian traditions, the notion of uniform uh, worn by the liturgical leader has remained fairly consistent. But in synagogues, the notion of a uniform for the liturgical leader uh, through all the denominations is not consistent at all. No, not at all. Uh, but part of it is that I think that the role of the leader of liturgy is, first of all, not necessarily the rabbi, and through most of Jewish history it wasn't the rabbi, um, it was a person who was called the emissary of the community. Sometimes it was someone professionally trained, and to this day we have individuals who are professionally trained for that purpose, who are, the, who are very often called cantors. Uh, but through history, it was uh, an individual uh, from the community who simply prepared for the liturgy. Um, and therefore, there was nothing, it was not considered to be a uh, a step apart. It wasn't. It didn't require a uniform because it was an emissary of the community. Uh, so unlike the anecdote I told, the person that you would want to be seeing leading the service should be a person who looks like you, not like somebody else. Um, when... uh, and therefore, I don't think there was fixed uh, the concept of the fixed uniform. The priest is was a very different uh, concept, right, uh, in Jewish history. Well, and so there, there's a, a greater similarity between the role of the ancient Hebrew priest and the priest in more traditional Christian traditions. Absolutely. I think that, that that's where you have much more of a continuity. And now, uh, I, and, yeah, go yeah. ahead. All right. And, and for the most part, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the role of the priesthood uh, effectively came to an end. Uh, the, the priest was fundamentally associated with uh, the sacrificial service and the services of, of purity and sacredness that were to be found at, at the temple. Um, and so for 2,000 years, 
We've acknowledged the continued existence of people who are uh, genealogically priests, called koanim, uh, but uh, they're functionally unemployed. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was uh, looking at chapter 28 in the Torah and its description of the ornaments worn by the priesthood, I was reminded of the ornaments of the Torah scroll. Absolutely. And so perhaps for our listeners, you could um, help them understand that transition and how the priest who is supposed to wear a breastplate and um, is supposed to wear a uh, unique uh, coat and who is supposed to have some sort of head covering um, and is supposed to wear bells, how all of those ornaments uh, make the journey onto the Torah scroll. Yeah, absolutely. When one sees a Torah scroll, the first thing you take note of uh, is, I guess, the, the the things that you take note of is, one is that it is indeed robed. It'll, it'll have a robe. Um, it's uh, very often the concept behind the robe is either that it's made out of rich material, the cover for the Torah, or that it's night, it's richly designed. There is often a metal plate that is actually called the breastplate uh, and is a direct connection with the priestly breastplate described in this Torah portion. Uh, and then most interesting is this strange description that is given about the hem of a robe that is supposed to alternate between pomegranates and bells. Now, pomegranates is a large fruit. Uh, so the, the description here must be of something that is either a design of a pomegranate or a cloth item that's in the shape of a pomegranate, and then the bells. Uh, and uh, why that's the case uh, uh, for the priest, as described in the book of Exodus, is open to speculation, but the way in which it gets transformed with the Torah scroll is that often crowns are put upon the Torah scroll that are in the shape of pomegranates and are actually called in Hebrew, rimonim, which means pomegranates, and very often are also laced with bells. So the robe as a fancy piece of material, the breastplate, the pomegranates, and the bells all make their way to the Torah. And, and I think that the uh, connection is, is, is really quite interesting, that, the, that this is the transformation. Um, it's a transformation that I think takes place in two ways. One is that we no longer have the, the temple, which was called Zion, uh, as the location where heaven and earth meet, where the priest could intercede between the people and God. and But we still have Sinai. Sinai as the place of the giving of the Torah. And what's so significant about the giving of the Torah is that it was given in tablets that could be carried. And indeed, you have the description in last week's Torah portion that these tablets would be carried all the way from Sinai to the land, 
uh, and uh, a, a Torah scroll as representative of those tablets to this day is an extraordinarily portable in the, uh, um, item. So rather than the fixed piece of earth that is Zion, we now have the symbolic uh, uh, output from Sinai, which is Torah. And rather than having the priest at Zion, we have the Torah scroll dressed as a priest, so that the Torah itself now becomes, for all intents and purposes, our priest, the intercessor between the people and God, the place where heaven and earth touch. And and so we dress the scroll, and this would be true of large and small congregations throughout the Jewish world, while some larger congregations might have multiple scrolls, um, smaller congregations in smaller communities might have only one or perhaps two, but they would all find the wherewithal to adorn the Torah scroll with the appropriate ornaments. Um, And you're suggesting that the ornamentation of the scroll following the description in this week's parasha is the marks the transition from the priest who was the intercessor between God and the people. And now the Torah becomes the intercessor, the reminder of that moment at Sinai when uh, people, the Israelites, witnessed uh, God's presence in their midst. Am I reading yes. you correctly there? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a multi-leveled uh, transformation. After all, the Holy of Holies, the, the inner sanctum of the temple, was a location where only one person could go one time of year. The high priest could enter the Holy of Holies only on the Day of Atonement. Um, it, it was a... Um, it was a location absolutely wrapped in mystery. One could only imagine what it was like inside it. Whereas the description of Sinai was all of Israel uh, was present. Uh, men, women, and children, all were there, all capable of witnessing and experiencing um, uh, God's revelation. So that uh, the transformation from temple to Torah it's also a transformation from a, a, a religion, a ritual that was wrapped in mystery to a religious experience that could be open for all. So it, the, the Torah represents the democratization of the Jewish experience that it's no longer relegated to the select few, or as our Torah portion suggests, to the ordained, that in this week's Torah portion, um, Aaron and his sons are anointed, and through that anointing become God's representatives on earth. Um, I want to thank Rabbi Paul Gollum, the senior scholar rabbi emeritus of Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York, for sharing some thoughts about this week's Torah portion. The recording, a podcast of this week's show, is available on iTunes under the title of Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's also available on the chri.ca website. 
And if you wish to write a note to Rabbi Gollum or myself, you can address it to jff at chri.ca. And we'll be happy to answer your questions or respond to your queries. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you uh, shalom and a good day. Behold.